Welcome to the Organizing Ideas podcast. My name is Karen Ng. And I'm Allison Jones, and we're your host for the podcast. And we're very honored to have been invited to speak to you today. And would like to start by extending a huge thank you to the Keeping It Real Organizing Committee for thinking of us and inviting us to speak today. And uh, to Heather for the introduction, and to Sajni and uh, Dr. Bullard from the UBCI School for guiding us through the preparations for our first ever live recording and keynote presentation. Um, Allison and I usually record on the unceded and, and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh uh, peoples. However, um, today both of us are calling in from the traditional territory of the Lekwungen and Wasonic peoples, um, and we're very gra grateful to be on this territory. For our conversation today, we're very excited to welcome back Ian Henninger and Ted Lee to discuss how precarious work impacts knowledge mobilization. Ian and Ted joined us way back in October 2019, as you can see in this photo here at Vancouver Public Library's Inspiration Lab, for the third episode of our podcast to talk about precarity. And we thought that in the midst of uh, this global pandemic with libraries laying off staff and the impacts of precarity being increasingly obvious and disastrous for uh, libraries, these two would have some insightful things to share with you all. Uh, they definitely did last time we spoke. Our shared conclusion was that we need to dismantle capitalism. So there's a fairly large knowledge mobilization project. Uh, so I'm excited to see where we end up in our conversation. Yeah, so welcome back to you both. Yeah, so we can get started. Normally we'd have our little intro jingle. Um, so taking our lead right from the Keeping It Real website, um, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, or SHRC, um, describes knowledge mobilization as uh, related, quote, to the production and use of research results, including knowledge synthesis, dissemination, transfer, um, exchange, and co-creation or co-production by researchers and knowledge users, end quote. Um, and that's a lot of big words. And so uh, let's start by asking what knowledge mobilization means uh, to you two. I, I just think of knowledge mobilization as putting theory into practice. Um, I think it's something that we don't do often or think about as often as academics in particular, like I'm coming from an academic standpoint. Um, there's actually a really interesting uh, comment that I read from Max Horkheimer, who's like this critical theorist from the 1930s, um, where he mentioned that the separation of theory and practice that we think of today comes from capitalism and, and the fact that capitalism uh, alienates us from our own labor and that professors and academics and researchers often don't think of themselves as laborers, but that they are workers and that just like how capitalism alienates factory workers from the things that they create, uh, the separation of theory and practice is because of that alienation of labor for researchers that we often don't see the effects of our own research. Um, and so I think knowledge mobilization is about reconnecting ourselves with the research that we do and looking at how that research is used and also making sure that research is used properly or ethically to help communities as opposed to, to extracting knowledge from communities and then just leaving them uh, to fend for themselves. 
Yeah. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's a really good point, Ted, about sort of that divide between theory and practice. And I, you know, I do think knowledge on its own isn't enough. And it's really important to sort of move beyond knowledge to, to action and consider how that action takes place. In terms of what knowledge mobilization means to me, like, I think I was kind of realized I was a bit fuzzy when I saw this definition. And so, you know, definitely did some reading up and thinking. Um, and I think it's big today and um, because, you know, sometimes you get uneven awareness adoption with sort of new or shiny things in libraries. So I think it's great that we're sort of looking at it for the rest of the day. Um, and I think the, the basic questions of sort of who has knowledge, who doesn't, and how can we rectify this are like really important and worth asking. Um, but I'm also, you know, I just have a lot of curiosity and sort of questions, which, um, you know, I'd be happy to hear from you or uh, other attendees, because I'm kind of, you know, in some aspect, my take is that we in libraries were already sharing knowledge and working to make it available in lots of ways. And so I'm curious kind of what's gained by pulling out this term. What does it mean to to kind of draw lines around this specific aspect, you know, of research knowledge and make it distinct. Um, you know, are we valuing knowledge obtained through research over other forms of knowledge? Um, you know, who is it benefiting to talk about knowledge mobilization as this distinct thing? Um, and, you know, maybe there's a risk there of just sort of commodifying knowledge, you know, treating it as something that has to be mobilized and sort of keeping it outside of sort of the social relations and power dynamics that, that give rise to its production. And, and so I think those are really important things to keep in mind when we're doing this work. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Alison, Karen, any, any thoughts from you? Well, I think we first got the uh, invite to, to do this. We were also a bit intimidated and a bit needing to, at least speaking for myself, brush up on what is knowledge mobilization. And, uh, you know, looking through the definition and the longer definition from Shirk does have some specific points about uh, knowledge mobilization outside academia, which for myself, like I work in public libraries is, is where I am. Uh, and also as a podcast where we are. And it's, and it specifically says that beyond academia, knowledge mobilization informs public debate policies and or practice, I guess, as Ted was, was bringing up. And I was like, oh, okay, kind of that feeling of relief. Like, I guess that is kind of what we do, but but I agree. And I think there, there is this element of, uh, you know, um, yeah, why why does it sound so intimidating or confusing? Like, who does that benefit to, to couch things in that way? Um, or, or, you know, what maybe is missing? Like Karen and I both finished library school very, very recently and, and we're, you know, not feeling very confident in what, what exactly this meant and entailed. So, you know, maybe there's a gap there in, in terms of uh, uh, well, what's being talked about in practice in the field and, and what people are learning in school, which I think we've, we've encountered in many, many areas after graduation and I, and I know others have as well. So. Um, so even with, you know, qualifications of what the term means and, and some questions around it, I, you know, I'm working on the assumption that both of you do knowledge, knowledge mobilization of some kind. So can you tell us about what that looks like for you? You know, maybe also it might help for some people who are less familiar with the kind of research you do to kind of um, give a little bit of background on that, but but then how it's into knowledge mobilization for your work. Yeah, sure. So I think, um, you know, there's certainly some definitional room, right? And it's kind of like that, that question of what is information in grad school? Um, 
And, you know, things I do like publishing open access, um, sharing information about conferences I attended with colleagues, you know, helping a grad student understand the difference between systematic and scoping reviews. Maybe they're not defined as knowledge mobilization in my duties, but I do consider that part of, you know, just like sharing information kind of as, as one of the core aspects of librarianship. Um, but in terms of intentional and sort of research focused efforts, uh, my research team does have a shared Twitter account, which my colleagues will be talking more about later today. But, you know, even with that, we didn't set out to say, hey, let's mobilize some knowledge. Um, you know, it definitely counts, but I'm less inclined to think of it in terms of knowledge mobilization and more in terms of like how we can connect people who are researching similar topics and thinking similar thoughts. Um, and kind of focus is just on being a hub and, and building relationships more on uh, more than more so than on the knowledge alone. So I think, you know, that kind of relational aspect, I think, is really organization. Yeah, the, I think, yeah, the relational aspect is really, really key, mostly because um, people don't listen to you unless they have a relationship with you, generally speaking. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm still a baby PhD student, I'm getting ready for my quals in January. Um, but I have, so I don't really teach classes or anything like that, but I have been asked to give lectures, um, like guest lectures at uh, courses. Um, at the UVC high school um, for, for um, who are all generally people going to professional degrees to work in a professional setting in NLP or in archives. Um, the lectures that I give um, are very, it's really interesting to kind of see the reaction because I talk a lot about professionalism. I talk about my research and the history of professionalism in information work. Um, then, and then precarious labor and the ways that precarious labor will affect the ways uh, that people feel about their professional identity and maybe even creating, possibly creating a new kind of professional identity in these uncertain times. Um, and it often, it's interesting to see how students will come up to me, I have these feelings, like I have these feelings about my own uncertainty about the future, about the job market, about my own like, personal identity because so much of our personal identity is tied up in our professional identities. Um, it was all of this, they have all this uneasiness and I couldn't describe it until this lecture that you gave me the words to talk about these feelings inside of me. And so I think for me, that's one of the most important aspects of what I think is uh, good knowledge mobilization is, um, I don't really like that term. It's so corporate, but like, <laughs> giving people the ability to talk about things that they experience and that they already experience and are very familiar with, but don't, they don't have the words yet, I think is, a, is a, an important part of my research is in helping people to talk about the things that they're experiencing. Yeah, and, and I'd also like to ask this to you, Karen and Allison, and sort of highlight, you know, especially your work with the podcast, because it occurs to me, you know, talking about relations and affect, like the podcast is really a mode where you, you know, you're having conversations and you're building sort of relationships through those conversations and it's a very effective sort of method. So, you know, how does that, how does that look for you? And also do you do knowledge mobilization elsewhere, I guess? I think similarly to what Allison said earlier, like when we got the, when we were like, um, when, when Julia and Sajni reached out to us about this, we were kind of like confused about the term knowledge mobilization. And to me, it almost seems like such an obvious, like why, why highlight it and call it knowledge mobilization? Shouldn't we 
be doing this and sharing information and knowledge anyway. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, but yeah, I think the, the, we, we really started the podcast because, you know, we were trying to kind of talk about things in, in, in a way where maybe this medium, this format was better. And, you know, most of the podcast is, is us interviewing and talking to really smart people because people have really smart things to share and to say. And um, like we were talking earlier this week for the Vancouver Podcast Festival, um, like this format makes it, you know, it's, it's more collaborative. It's easier to, to access. There's a slightly lower barrier as opposed to maybe scholarly articles that might still be available on open access. Um, but it's like an easier, kind of more fun uh, way to access knowledge as well. Um, I don't know if like, it, and it, yeah, like Ted, it's really weird to think of it as knowledge mobilization. I'm trying to think like, is there any other way that I'm, and I'm sure it is. I think it's also just in the relationships you have with other people. Like when you're talking to friends and they might have a resource that you don't have. I just think a lot about like my conversations with friends and like connecting each other to, to resources. And I guess this kind of leads in, into like the next question that we have, which is, you know, maybe kind of, um, which is, you know, why is knowledge mobilization important? Which I think is obvious, but I, I kind of want us to, to really unpack it a little bit more because there's a whole conference that we're gonna be focusing on on this term. So why is it important? Um, Ted, do you wanna start? Sure, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way as you, like, it seems so obvious, like, why, like, why would we have to create this whole term, like, knowledge mobilization, um, which sounds so scary, and I was thinking about why it sounds so intimidating and scary, and I think it's because the, the, the word mobilization, like, is usually associated with, like, military war, right, it's like this idea of, like, we mobilize an entire country or people, usually to go to war on something, and I think that's what kind of causes some of the uneasiness, at least for me, is like, what are we mobilizing this knowledge for? Um, I think is really a critical question we need to ask. And also like, who gets to mobilize the knowledge? Um, because oftentimes, at least in the academic setting, knowledge mobilization is usually the academic mobilizing the knowledge that they have extracted from the community, right? Where it could be just the community members are using the knowledge. Um, they don't need to ask the academic for permission, right? And things like that. But it is important in the sense that I do feel like knowledge should change you uh, or change behavior or change thought, right? If we learn something new, especially something new that challenges the way that we think about the world or challenges our assumptions, the hope would be that it would change you in some way. It would change your behavior, it would change your worldview. Um, and that's how we continue to learn and to progress and get better, right? Um, not to get too much into like this teleological progressive you know, linear kind of mode of thinking, but the idea is that knowledge should change you. Like we, we should hope that when students, for example, go to the university to learn or go to the library to learn, that they're not just like collecting facts to put on a shelf and to like display sometimes every now and then at like, you know, parties or something. Like we, we would hope that, that it changes the way that they behave and think about things and also like perhaps get them motivated to, to be involved more in their communities and in their, in their own like neighborhoods and civic life and so forth. So yeah, I think 
that is ultimately what we're going for, right? We we're not just doing all this research because we think it's interesting, just interesting. Like we want something to change. We want things to improve, hopefully, right? Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, just important partly because making information accessible is important in general. And I think, I guess the benefit, you know, there's some confusion around, you know, why have this term? Um, and I know also, you know, including people today, um, folks are using other terms like knowledge exchange, knowledge transfer, which are maybe a bit less metaphorical in terms of mobilization. But um, I think I think the benefit of having knowledge mobilization as this specific domain um, is because it really helps us draw attention to how we're sharing information, which I think in libraries sometimes we do uncritically or you know without regards to to harm or um, you know sort of the the affect associated with that like uh you know an example would be how are we mobilizing you know indigenous knowledge and should we or should we you know respect like ownership control access possession things like that right um or you know sometimes you want increased access sometimes you don't so so kind of thinking about how and when and whether we share information um i think is a strength of, of knowledge mobilization i'm also um you know, related to this topic, I'm reminded of the slides I saw at the, it was the LibRev conference earlier this year by uh, Stacey Williams and Myrna Morales. And they talked about this idea of epistemic supremacy as sort of looking at the ways in which information is used to sort of create and maintain, uh, you know, a ruling class and uphold capitalism and white supremacy and things like that. And so I think, you know, knowledge mobilization can fall prey to this, but I think it's also really helpful for helping us really focus on who has access to knowledge and what kinds of knowledge or privilege and how we treat the, the knowledge that we have, you know, whether that's gained through research or, or through other means. Thanks. We're going to transition into talking a bit about precarity and maybe actually to do that, I can draw on another thread of how this podcast got started and, and some of the reasons Karen and I, you know, decided to spend our free time recording conversations with random librarians and archivists. Um, and one of the reasons for us was that, well, I had just graduated and was working on call as an auxiliary librarian in different public libraries. Karen was still in school. And um, I really missed the conversations that we had in school of the kind that Ted's talking about where someone would, you know, like break down a lot of these really complicated ideas. And then I, you know, I, one hour later, you'd leave class or whatever, uh, having words for an experience or, you know, a new way of thinking about something. And uh, to be frank, unfortunately, it's not always the case that as an auxiliary librarian, you get much time or uh, space at, uh, at work to have those kind of conversations with your colleagues, because most of the time I'm working on the desk or doing uh, uh, programs or something like that, which is fun. And you know, I learn a lot and have other kinds of experiences that I enjoy there. But, you know, I did miss that. And the, you know, making the podcast was a way for Karen and I to keep having those kind of conversations with different people. And, um, and we heard from quite a few friends, our first listeners, uh, that for them, it served a similar function as recent graduates to be able to kind of like, you know, uh, have those conversations, you know, listen to them or engage in them on Twitter or chat with one of us about them um, in that way. And, um, and so, yeah, for me, that's like why, why this podcast was a really important project was to kind of give some space for that, for those ideas that then you can go back into work and 
you know, like see something through a whole different light and try something different and, and see where it goes kind of thing. Um, but let's shift into talking about that, about like precarious work, precarity, how that affects what kind of knowledge, what knowledge mobilization is or looks like. Uh, and to start us off with that, you both did this very beautifully in our last interview, but I'm working on the assumption not everyone here has heard it already. Um, can you start by defining precarity and precarious work and the difference between them, which you even had to remind me of as we were preparing for this. So uh, thanks. Why don't, uh, Ian, why don't you start us off? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And maybe before I do, I want to go back really quick, because I think both you and um, and Ted earlier made made kind of an interesting point just about the value of these conversations. And this also ties into precarity, I guess, because it reminds me of, um, you know, my own situation when I recently graduated, um, you know, I was in a precarious job market, etc. And so I think it really gets at this idea of research and, and knowledge mobilization as sort of a way of making sense of the world, right? And, and having conversations as a way of making sense of the world. And then, like Ted said, sort of, you know, once we do that, maybe we want to, um, to give that to other people or help them make sense of the world if they want it, right? Because there's like a total risk of sort of savior complexes and stuff like that. But yeah, I think... Um, you know, precarity drives people to make sense of the world due to the uncertainty that exists in it. Um, and so I think, you know, research and uh, knowledge mobilization are kind of one way of doing that. But yeah, in terms of definitions, um, I would say at the most general, you can talk about precarity overall as kind of a state of both material and psychological vulnerability, uh, typically brought on by insecurity or unpredictability. And this could be due to, you know, war, famine, uh, pandemics, like basically the four horsemen of the apocalypse plus capitalism and, you know, a few other things. Um, and so precarious labor specifically, we can speak more, more specifically about positions with uncertain variable or temporary pay and hours, which kind of have the effect of producing this overall precarity. Um, and these are most commonly taken to be contract or on-call or soft funding jobs. But, you know, I think the, the present pandemic has shown everything is kind of ultimately precarious. Um, and even if your job feels safe, that can kind of, you know, change in the blink of an eye. So, yeah, that's kind of my Just take. to draw that out a bit, I, I think is something your research group has written about too, like the definition of precarious being very, you know, based on people's experience of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, it, Subjectivity is kind of a, a double-edged sword. Um, somebody, you know, I think I think somebody on Twitter made a really good point that libraries can also, or employers can also use that against employees and say, well, they don't experience this job as precarious, therefore it's not precarious. So I think, yeah, certainly some people can feel, you know, safe and secure in an on-call or contract position, perhaps due to, you know, various advantages or situations that they have. Um, but there are just sort of material you know, real material circumstances that make a job much more likely to be perceived uh, as precarious, if that makes sense. Yeah, Ian did a good job describing precarity. I don't know really if I have anything to add outside of that. I think it's important to point out that it is both a psychological and a material state of being, right? Um, you can feel precarious even in a well-paid job because it could be canceled at any time, right? Like you have no protections, um, against being fired at will or what have you, or maybe you're working from contract to contract and so you never know when your next contract is gonna come up, um, as well as the material precarity of like being in a job that doesn't pay enough for you know, uh, decent living standards and so forth. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's kind of bring 
the two like precarity and knowledge mobilization together. Um, so like, how does precarity affect knowledge mobilization then? Like if you're in a precarious situation, like, you know, what are there ways that precarity creates barriers to, to knowledge mobilization? Yeah. Uh, um, so many barriers. <laughs> Don't worry. I think I um, five minutes, so go for it. <laughs> just right. Yeah. Um, Oh gosh. So like precarity creates uh, a psychological state, I feel like um, most importantly, that is very risk averse, right? When you have to conserve your resources as much as possible because you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if you're going to hit like another dry spell where you won't be able to get any resources for a while or whatever you're dealing with. It makes you very risk averse. And so the thing with knowledge mobilization is that it often, and any kind of change really, is that it often requires you to take some kind of risk. Either you're doing something new and different that you haven't done before, um, or that you are going to be doing something that doesn't necessarily have like a certain outcome. And so because of that, it's really difficult, I think, for people to to take those risks for change if they don't know that there's gonna be a specific payout, um, especially if they're already stretched thin. Um, like I think of, for example, like with practitioners, even just simple things like um, where you have practitioners and you go up to them and you say, hey, like we found this new way of like say describing items. Um, can you, you know, maybe do this because it helps out, you know, marginalized people or what, uh, and, uh, and practitioners will be like, I'm already dealing with like 50 different fires. And now you want me to like overhaul the description system? Like, no, that's not happening, right? And so it's also though that like, there's that kind of like mad like pyramid of needs, right? If, you're, if your basic needs aren't being taken care of, then you don't have the time to like look for those conversations that help kind of broaden your world or change the way that you look at things or make you motivated to, to do things differently in your own work. Um, and so precarity shrinks in a lot of ways, our imagination, our ability to imagine, right? And it shrinks our ability to, to look at the world differently because we're so focused on the here and now that we can't project anything into the future or, or even begin to imagine what a, what a different future could be. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, risk aversion is, is definitely a big one. Uh, so too is just sort of capacity, right? It sort of reduces your, your window for tolerance in terms of just sort of what you're able to get done. And I think this is something, you know, not just talking about people who are precariously employed, but we're all kind of feeling a lot of precarity right now with the pandemic, right? Um, just ongoing uncertainty. And so, um, you know, that can, in a sense, be, be its own, own barrier to knowledge mobilization. I think, I think another, another way in which it creates, uh, creates barriers is, is just uh, as a barrier to relationships across the board. And that can be, you know, with colleagues, with institutions, institutional knowledge, and also with the people you're sharing knowledge with. Um, you know, even if you're not precariously employed, those dynamics can still affect you because maybe you're working with a nonprofit um, where staff are precariously employed or grant funded and, you know, they might fold or you're working with a population who's experiencing a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, I think relationship building takes time. And, and like Ted said, the knowledge that you have a stable future in which to build that relationship really will lead you to be able to invest more in it. Um, and so that, that time and that knowledge of a stable future aren't present with precarity. 
And so it just kind of makes, you know, makes work in general more difficult. It certainly makes knowledge mobilization more difficult. Um, other things that come to mind include, you know, just sort of the time and capacity for reflection. Um, and Allison, you mentioned, you know, not having much time for this as a auxiliary worker. Um, and certainly, you know, these days people with care responsibilities, people, you know, with, um, you know, maybe just working at home with lots of distractions, you know, may not have as much capacity for, for that kind of reflection. I think another way in which precarity affects knowledge mobilization or, or sort of throws up barriers is just through the, the broader issues of, you know, representation and equity and inclusion that come up with precarity. Um, you know, people talk about like the diversity of the library and archives profession and things like that. And there's just so many barriers, um, you know, maybe starting at birth in some cases, right, in terms of the advantages that, that some people do or don't have. But, you know, it's kind of a, the master's degree is talked about as one barrier, right, to a, to a more diverse profession. But then precarious labor also exerts selective pressures that can lead to people getting burnt out, to leaving the profession, um, you know, and just not being able to stick it out. And those people who have more, more resources, more advantages are often the ones who are able to stick it out. And so I see this as kind of affecting, you know, who sticks it out long enough to get to a point where they can engage in knowledge mobilization from, you know, the comfort or the stability of a secure job. Um, and so that's, that's kind of something, you know, it affects um, not just who's able to do it, but also who do they look to in terms of, you know, populations of groups to, to mobilize knowledge with and, and how, how effectively are they able to do that, right? Um, if they're coming from a, a different cultural background, you know, there could be some some advantages to having a, a similar cultural background, for instance. So things like that. And and yeah, like have you, um, for Allison and Karen, you know, have you sort of seen precarity creating barriers to your own like work with the podcast, things like that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a couple of things that have come up numerous times for us that with specifically with the podcast. One is having uh, free time. Uh, at first when I was working on cause working at two different library systems and it felt like I was always working you know like sometimes literally We're always working <laughs> <laughs> you know multiple weeks before I'd have a day off and this is partially a decision around my own scheduling or I guess it's pushed on me as it's whatever but the conditions of work were such where you know you might be working many many days in a row but only for four hours or something like that each day so actually not working full-time or something like that so having time and energy to devote to a, this project could be really hard and um, I think it's true of many other things in people's lives um, uh, another one that we've um, the last episode we put out with Baharaki Sefi we talked about in in that episode was um, uh, well, she's, she said it very succinctly, very eloquently, like some people would be listening and think this is not a professional conversation to have. And, uh, and so I think that's another one that's been a challenge in terms of thinking around um, security, uh, having conversations around precarity or, or just even more generally on other topics that we've talked about on the podcast around ways that libraries might change or problems with libraries. Um, you know, we've had a number of conversations around intellectual freedom and transphobia and fascism and, you know, things like that. These are uh, complicated conversations in libraries right now, and people have very strong opinions about them and, and speaking, uh, 
you know, and making clear what our opinions are on some of those topics, people, you know, have warned us against. And we talked about this when we interviewed you guys the first time too. Like some people have said, don't talk about precarity while you're precarious. Um, so that's obviously a barrier <laughs> to knowledge mobilization. Um, I don't know if you want to add any other care others, Karen. Um, well, definitely like, and it's hard to kind of distinguish between like, was it hard to take on this project because I had just graduated and was like, well, I think it's both. It's very intertwined where when COVID, when things shut down because of COVID, um, there were just no job postings. Everyone was on like a hiring freeze or hiring chill. And it makes it like, you know, suddenly I had technically supposedly all this time, but all this time kind of went towards, you know, one thing and this was kind of, on the back burner or sometimes and it, it's it kind of you feel really bad <laughs> and it just um or I felt really bad and I just didn't have the energy for for this and uh, which was weird because when we first started this podcast like you know Allison was working two auxiliary jobs and I was in school and also working and somehow we had time to do this but then um yeah, and, and I think like we've, like Allison and I have had a lot of conversations about the podcast where sometimes we'll say like, I don't know if we want to share this because I think the situations that we're, we're in, not because I think we're saying anything that's controversial or, or bad, but I think it's just there's a lack of security um, because we are in like a kind of shaky um, environment. Um, yeah. The other question we had kind of planned, which I know in our notes, which the question is like, are there any ways uh, precarity can help or support knowledge mobilization? I know in the notes that you both just said no, and I'm wondering if um, you have anything to add or we could just skip over it. I, I actually want to retract my flat no. I think there is one thing that precarity can do, especially extreme precarity, like the, the precarity that we're experiencing right now. And the, so we're in a pandemic, right? Um, one thing that I think not to try to pull silver, silver linings out of catastrophes where like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died. But I think one thing that the pandemic has shown us, there's a couple of things the pandemic has shown us. One is that a lot of the concepts of political reality, right? Like, oh, it's just not a politically feasible or real solution has been completely blown out of the water because we have seen governments take extreme measures um, in multiple countries to protect uh, their, their citizens and also to keep their economies afloat. So clearly the political will or political reality uh, myth is kind of blown out of the water. I think a lot of people have seen that. Also the way that has, especially at the beginning, it, it has lessened now because privilege is privilege, but in the beginning, everybody felt that precarity, right? Um, and it affected a lot of us, I think, psychologically. And at the same time, you have like communities like the disabled community who are like, ah, oh, yes, welcome to my daily reality, right? And, and so I think it hopefully gives us an opportunity for empathy to like understand what precarity actually is. Precarity is living through a pandemic, right? Except that for some people, this is a daily, you know, thing that they have dealt with their entire lives, this kind of physical precarity where they can't leave their house for whatever reason or they have they struggle to like focus on work because they're dealing with so many other stresses and issues um and i think also one thing that the pandemic has done is that it has allowed us to talk about things more openly that we normally would never have been able to talk about um 
I know that a lot of my friends, for example, report that like talking about things like mental illness is now okay in a work environment because everyone is dealing with some form of like mental illness or mental disability at this moment. And like my motto for 2020 is feral is the new normal, right? Like where people just openly talk about like, yeah, sometimes I struggle to get out of bed before 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. like every day, right? And, and I think that normalization of talking about those kinds of things is only because of this extreme kind of like, like universal precarity event that before professionalism, like you mentioned, like the idea of professionalism, is this a professional conversation? Or am I conducting myself in a professional way? It's so vague, but powerful. It's so powerful in the ways that it forces us to discipline ourselves, to like muzzle ourselves, because we're not sure if this is a professional way of talking about things or if these are professional subjects. Um, but because of the way that this kind of mass precarity has like caused us to realize maybe there's more important things, right? To then then talk thinking about professionalism or, or like thinking about our career, especially if many of us are don't even know if we're gonna have careers, right, coming out of this. Like might as well talk about these things now. Yeah, a little bit of hopeful fatalism there, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think so. I think I think the pandemic uh, has really exposed how broken things are and and motivated change even if people don't have the capacity to act on it right now um yeah in terms of other ways precarity can help not i'm, I'm really glad you gave such a good answer Ted, because i don't know if i have too much else um but i think you know if we can just sort of go back to that that topic of um precarity affecting knowledge mobilization through that pressure to to be a certain way that lack of security and and kind of that idea of professionalism um, it kind of, you know, it kind of brings up something that I've been, I guess, thinking about and sort of working with a bit more recently, like more so in my personal life, because I don't have a problem, you know, criticizing or, or complaining about things, you know, more broadly, right? Um, but it's kind of this idea that, you know, I think you see in libraries a lot of, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, and sort of civility and professionalism and things like that. And I've really been trying to come around um, to the idea you know, for myself and more broadly, that sort of criticism of myself or criticism of an institution, like it really shows you care. It's not, you know, like Allison, you mentioned, you know, not wanting to sort of be seen as like complaining or anything like that. You know, it's not, it's not complaining. It's sort of criticizing libraries or, or talking about critical topics because sort of we want libraries to be better. And we have a sort of conception of what good is involved there. Um, and so I think, but, but, you know, I think that sort of pressure to be professional or sort of to be a certain way, um, you know, limits knowledge mobilization, not just for the people who are doing it, but also the people who you're doing it with. Um, you know, people may not feel comfortable collaborating with a researcher, um, you know, due to, you know, past experiences, um, historical relationships between the academy and, you know, indigenous communities, for instance, things like that. So, yeah, I think I think it's been sort of helpful to see a lot of those underlying fault lines laid bare, even if it's also simultaneously very, very depressing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it sort of really helps us see what's important and sort of evaluate, you know, what, what really matters right now. And I think a lot of that just comes down to, you know, being there for other people. And so if your knowledge mobilization, you know, if your broader work isn't, isn't focused on 
sort of supporting other people and being there for other people, then kind of what good is it right now, right? It shouldn't have taken us a pandemic to like get to this point. That's my personal opinion, right? Like it shouldn't take a global pandemic to make you, to get you to sympathize with disabled people, for example, but like here we are, right? So. Thanks. Well, thank you both for your, your thoughts on that. And, you know, it, it, the one thing that I could think of for, for that, like how precarity could help or support knowledge mobilization was more like how can it inspire it, which is very similar. Like sometimes it really does light a fire for you. Um, and I know that for me, like the fact that our union has specific positions for precarious workers on the executive and has actually done uh, like the larger, um, like our parent union QP has done research on precarious work. Like it's kind of lit this fire for our union. Like people care about this a lot. People are affected by it. It means we need to do some research and understand it and, uh, you know, make it part of our bargaining proposals and really push for change um, through some of those mechanisms that we do have um, to do so. So it kind of leads into the next question, which is how can researchers, you know, or, you know, people who might not identify as researchers uh, more generally, facing all these barriers still mobilize knowledge when their working conditions are uncertain or precarious? Um, how do you overcome all that or work around it or undermine it and and uh, and continue to do to do that kind of work. Ted, do you want to start us off? Sure, yeah. That is the million dollar question, right? I think is how how do we do this? Like so for example, both Ian and I have come to the conclusion that we need to dismantle capitalism. So like how do you dismantle capitalism, right? Like um, yeah. <laughs> Or, or for those of you who don't want to dismantle capitalism entirely, how do you change working conditions? Because right now, I think most of us can admit that the way that things are going along is intolerable, right, um, and unsustainable. Um, and that is a really difficult, I think that is very dependent on the community and the people that you're working with. I think one thing that researchers, and I'm speaking from the position of like the academy, I suppose, um, we need to be careful not to take over movements or take over other people's work because there's a tendency, there's a strong tendency for us to do that. We're trained to do that essentially. And I think it's important for us to remember that uh, that um, the, the change that is gonna happen is not necessarily going to be because of us. It's gonna be because of the people taking the information and the knowledge that we've created or co-created and using that for themselves. And that is okay, right? Like it is okay to, to do that, right? I think for us, it's mostly learning how to leverage the privilege that we do have um, to help those who don't have as much privilege as us, right? Um, so for example, um, faculty, for example, when it comes to like student precarity are gonna have a lot more leverage than students. Um, but students are often, unfortunately, the ones who are doing the organizing uh, and faculty are not. And so that is a, that is a question of like privilege and power and who has that leverage and trying to enlist people who have that leverage to, to help out, you know, and protect those who don't have as much power in the organization. Yeah, I think, I think that idea of, you know, sort of what can I do, you know, look for where you do have power is, is really important. And that's, and that's one of the things that sort of helped me, you know, just through this pandemic in terms of what can I actually do? Like, um, 
you know, when the, the George Floyd protests um, kicked off, I was up here in Canada from the States originally up here in Canada asking, what can I do? Um, and I looked for where I did have power and I was kind of uh, the incoming chair of the BC Academic Library section. So, you know, I went, I went to that group and, and sort of said, what can we do? Um, and I think the same thing, same thing applies for our research and, and our knowledge mobilization with my research team. We, you know, we didn't, I don't know if we really talked about it. I don't know, feel free to correct me, everyone. But, but um, we, from, from the beginning, we had the idea that we would also, we would not just research Canadian academic librarians. We would also research precarious work for public librarians and library technicians, because we knew that they were perhaps less able to speak up and, um, you know, address the issue of precarious work in some ways. And so, like Ted said, you know, we're sort of putting that out there. So maybe people can, can read our articles, find them useful, stuff like that. And so, yeah, I would encourage anyone doing research or knowledge mobilization to think about, you know, how you can use that on behalf of other people without being, you know, without being pushy, without taking over. Um, there's definitely a lot of cases where research is kind of this extractive endeavor, right? Where you're sort of like, you know, it's very like colonial, you're like harvesting resources from a certain population with less power. So staying away from that, but um, yeah, really, really approaching research from like a, a community led and, and sort of equity focused, focused mindset. Um, so definitely, yeah, looking for where you have power is, as one strategy. Um, and I'm just gonna keep talking because you said we have time. So feel free to chime in everyone. Um, but I think, I think another, another key thing to do in terms of mobilizing knowledge under uncertain working conditions is kind of the same as um, the same as anything else you can do, which is to, whether you're on contract or not, right, which is to determine what's manageable, what's not, you know, what's in scope, what's out of scope, and what you're willing to do outside of work time. Um, and hopefully that's not much, but, you know, some people can and do have the capacity. Um, Maureen Babb, an acquaintance of mine, I've, I've met her at a couple of conferences, uh, has written a chapter just recently. It's available open access, and it talks about doing research as a sessional librarian. And so she talks about things like chunking your project up based on your contract length, relying on continuing colleagues for support. And so there are a bunch of um, concrete strategies there that I think would be helpful to anyone who's, you know, maybe you're not on contract, but you're just doing research off the side of your desk as a student, you know, things like that. Um, and then I think another thing that helps with mobilizing knowledge is just for, for people whose conditions are more certain to support your temporary colleagues. Uh, make sure they're able to participate in any opportunities your library has. Talking about research or, or doing research. Um, so things like looking at when you're having any meetings related to this, seeing if you have asynchronous options, because some people may be like part-time. Um, one example of this is, you know, SFU has a research interest group. And so that's been uh, one helpful sort of source of institutional support for me and my uh, research team colleagues, um, just sort of going through this and having, having continuing colleagues, having a forum to sort of talk about our, our research ideas. So kind of, um, you know, one way in which our uh, institution has supported us, even, even while recognizing that we're on contract. Yeah, I think... Ian brings up a good point and uh, a point that we've kind of talked about earlier is that the way that like precarious work shreds communities, it, it shreds work communities in particular, because especially for people with contracts um, that expired, they're always looking for the next job. And so they can't really build the same kind of linkages with colleagues uh, as long-term colleagues can in, a, in an institution. Um, but 
that said, uh, we live in a time where you can communicate with people very easily around the globe uh, through social media, through like various different kinds of communication platforms. Um, and so, so I would recommend um, if you are interested in this kind of work and especially if you're a precarious worker to try to find groups or create groups um, of people that can discuss these things openly um, and even just provide support. Um, for example, uh, I'm an archival PhD student in archival studies and so there's not a lot of us. Um, and we started a Slack group uh, because in each department, like in each information school department, there's only like two or three of us, but there's, you know, dozens of us, there's dozens of us around the, around the country. Uh, and, you know, and especially in like the Canada and the US. And that has helped create a sense of solidarity and helped us to share information with each other um, in what can otherwise be a really isolating experience. And so I think, um, and, and my research is about how people being able to communicate in social media and online has helped create a sense of a professional identity uh, when previously um, precarious work would have crushed that sense of professional identity. Um, they're able to create a new kind of professional identity through um, the ability to communicate with colleagues that are not necessarily near them, spatially or geographically. So um, building those kinds of, of, of links with other people, I think is really critical in, um, in creating any kind of change because we can't do anything by ourselves. Um, and we need to start looking for communities and, and support from other people and support other people in turn. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that, that reminds me of uh, just the last episode of this podcast where Baharak Yousafi was talking about how her research is, I think, kind of looking at, you know, where and how and why people are making communities outside of normal, right, professional circles, right, like we here and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think I think that sort of support network is is really helpful and definitely one of the things that has helped me sort of live along anyway, sort of get through this pandemic is, is sort of that outside community of support. Yeah, I definitely feel like, because I'm on technically a contract now, like, you know, I don't feel like I, like, I keep wishing, like, I wish I felt like I belonged somewhere, but I think the relationships that I have with, like, you know, my classmates that are my colleagues, but, you know, maybe in different um, institutions and workplaces now, like, those are still there, and I'm really grateful for that, that community, like, that, like, we can still do work, um, and that has been very grounding and like, you know, I think that will last, you know, beyond this contract here at UVic. And I think what, what Ted and Ian, you were both saying leads really well into our next question, which is just how can, can people who are, you know, researching precarious work mobilize their findings um, to organize workers and change the conditions of their labor. So um, I know Allison added a note about like, you know, let's talk about unions here. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, Ian, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, I don't even know if there's literally dozens of us researching precarious work. It's kind of uh, a bit of a niche field, though I think it's increasing. Um, it has increasing interest in libraries, certainly. But I would say, you know, it's not just on the few of us researching this topic specifically to sort of change labor conditions. There, there are lots of people looking at other aspects of libraries, right? Um, who, who are also doing great work to do this. But, you know, I would kind of encourage anyone involved in, in research or knowledge mobilization to consider how precarity, both at the level of labor structures and just broader systemic social precarity, affects both their work and the people they work with. Um, you know, I think we, we 
we already talked about how being precarious employed impedes the ability to enact. Um, and you mentioned unions, but you know, in my case, at all of my jobs, I would have liked to have been more involved with uh, union work or think Senate or library account uh, at my institution. But I can't, in part because I've never been able to plan ahead uh, more than a year at a time. So it's kind of, um, you know, it shouldn't just be on precarious workers to change things for precarious workers or for people researching this topic. But I think um, in terms of good examples, there are some great examples that answer this question from the Digital Library Federation's collective, I think it's a collective responsibility group. And this is a group of mainly digital library workers who have created this group focused on specific grant funded positions and kind of with a focus on digital libraries, but lots of applicability across the board. And what they've done um, in terms of mobilizing their findings, you know, they're not publishing or, or working so much at the academic level, although definitely I think their academic background helps. Um, but what they've done is, you know, they've released a white paper summing up a lot of the issues with contingent work. And they recently released a toolkit on um, talking about precarious labor, whether you're precariously employed yourself, whether you're a manager, whether you're somewhere in between, and just ways to get that conversation started in your workplace. So maybe if you're part of a part of a union, um, you know, things like that could be helpful. Um, other things in terms of mobilizing findings, I don't know, Ted, Karen, Allison. Hey, unions are a really question because I think cool. most. They're cool. They are very <laughs> cool. They're lit. <laughs> They're so fleek. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I think what's interesting though is that like a lot of um, at least well I don't know about the situation with precarious la like precarious laborers in general um, specifically I guess um, but you know a lot of librarians and archivists are in unions um, but they're usually related to the the sector that they're in like you know they're in the public sector and so they're part of the public sector union right. Um, in both the US and Canada. And um, so like a lot of people already have some like interfaces with unions. Um, I would actually, this is not a position I would have taken maybe like a year or two ago, but I'm really um, heartened as opposed to disheartened by the, the work that has been done in the SAA by a lot of incoming uh, younger progressive professionals who have decided to get involved with the organization sometimes much to the consternation of like older professionals, which I think is very funny because it's a lot of like, you know, you need to be more involved in our professional organizations and when we do get involved, like, but not like this, right? But, but here we are. Um, and I think it's important to remember that these professional organizations were created for a reason uh, in the beginning and uh, that they can be leveraged and it are a good existing kind of infrastructure that we could leverage very slowly, but surely by through our participation and through, you know, um, being involved in a lot of the, the work there to pr better protect or represent workers. That being said, I know that like professional organization burnout is a very real thing because you're often butting up against um, a lot of uh, different interest groups that fight a lot, uh, let's be totally honest. Um, and that can be very draining, but that said, um, that burden doesn't necessarily have to be shared with just, you know, professional organization committee leadership or committee members. Um, more and more, I think professional members should be involved, if not in those groups and starting groups to, to kind of pool our resources and our labor together to, to push for, for certain kinds of change. Um, and 
I think specifically of like how we have traditionally like stayed away from political, uh, any kind of political activity, like lobbying, um, unless it comes to funding, uh, lobbying in like political, you know, um, spheres of power. But at the same time, we can see the effects of like the shredding of social safety nets and so forth and their effects on libraries. Um, librarians are more and more called to act as social workers, which is just not part of their professional training. Um, and they're not compensated for that either because libraries are one of the few, you know, last uh, functioning public institutions in our in our civic society. And so uh, more and more they have to do these kinds of social work uh, activities and that is a direct result of political actions by politicians, you know, cutting funding in different programs that are not related to libraries, but have caused collateral effects in the library. And so I think becoming more aware of like the broader political landscape and how it affects us and then lobbying for that change, I think is a, a possibility that we should be exploring. Thank you. Um, I'll add a little bit about unions myself then, because both of you, you know, you, you have some hesitations or qualifications on that and um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> unions have a lot of issues, but I, but I, what I do want to say about them is that they, they do have quite a large uh, say in our working conditions where many of us work um, if we're in unionized workplaces. And, and as you point out, Ian, with the struggles that um, precarious workers can face to get involved, they can really make or break somebody's experience um, in how they choose to approach or address precarity in the workplace. And, um, and I've had very different experiences with different, different unions at different libraries that I've worked at. And I have found that QP Local 23, um, which represents um, employees of the city of Burnaby has done a lot of work around precarity over a number of years now. And that was really spearheaded by precarious employees, which I think about 60% of the employees of the city of Burnaby are precarious in some way, either temporary or part-time or auxiliary workers. And um, precarious workers fought really hard to have positions created on our executive to represent precarious workers. So we have two precarious worker representatives. Um, and that was done really with the support and the involvement of um, non-precarious workers who had to help <laughs> um, get those constitutional amendments approved. And so I do think there's a big role in unions for those employees who have the time and energy to devote to being involved in the union to think not only about what do better benefits look like and uh, wage increases, um, things like that, which many precarious workers don't actually get to <laughs> Uh, use or access to also think about, okay, what does it look like um, to improve working conditions for, for precarious workers at, at my workplace? Um, I think that's really important work that, that people can be doing who aren't precarious to, to change this situation. And I also think that um, when you have people, whether they're precarious or not, bringing those issues up at unions repeatedly, they do make it into bargaining proposals. And also, um, you know, in the city of Burnaby, we had one of the um, best um, uh, negotiations with the city around layoffs. Um, our layoffs happened much later than other cities in the lower mainland. Um, people had six weeks of full pay. Um, and um, at least in Burnaby Public Library, I think 
Last time I heard numbers, all but about 10 of our employees have been called back, which is much better than in many other places. And I think that's thanks to precarious workers pushing really hard on our union to pay attention to this issue, to create spaces in the union where precarious workers have power and have say, and to make sure that um, non-precarious workers have our backs. And when we're laid off, that they still say, it doesn't matter, still come to the union meetings and you know you get to participate in the same way and all that kind of stuff. So I do think unions can make a really big difference and I think we should be using them. Um, in many, as many ways as we can, and also, you know, um, pushing them to do that work well when they're not, which often they're not, to be totally frank. But anyways, there's my spiel. Um, yeah, shout we- out to unions. Like, <laughs> no, unions are great because they also, like, I think one of the things that, that the benefits of unions is that you also get to meet workers in other fields, even mm-hmm. though it's a large, you know, public sector is a very large uh, sector. You get to meet people in other fields and realize you're not alone. And I think that is a really huge benefit. Totally. Yeah. And I do think like, I guess I should bring it back to knowledge mobilization. A lot of that work was underpinned by um, research too. QP's done research and they've shown that disproportionately folks in precarious positions um, that includes women, LGBTQ workers, workers of color are disproportionately in these precarious positions. Um, you know, research like the stuff that uh, Ian, your group is doing has helped us look at patterns across the country and, and ask questions like, why is this such a big problem in BC? Um, uh, and, uh, and we do have one of our precarious workers reps is uh, working on her master's degree and doing a lot of research on this. And she's always bringing new information and framing to the executive meetings and really pushing people to learn and grow and, and think about this issue in new ways. So it, it really has made a big difference to have that kind of research to draw on. So um, I'm gonna take us into our last prepared question. So I wanna remind anybody attendees that you can ask questions in the Q&A and we will go through as many of them as we can. And I see there's a few in there, so, um, uh, so that's great. But if other people have questions, put them in there. You can ask Karen and I or Ted or Ian specifically or something for the whole group. But our last prepared question is around COVID and you two have talked a little bit about this already. Surprise, surprise, it's on our minds, but how has COVID-19 affected precarious work? And are there new ideas or questions that you're thinking about as the pandemic continues either that you want to research and look into or that um, you think we need to be addressing around precarious work? Ted, do you wanna start? Yeah. Um... <laughs> Oh boy, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I know for me specifically for my research plans, uh, there's no way to not talk about COVID, I feel like. Um, and it's interesting, like my research has taken a lot of turns. Um, when we met last year to do the podcast, I had just started transitioning into thinking about professionalism and the effects of professionalism on precarious work and the effects of precarious work in turn on professionalism. Um, because of personal experiences uh, where uh, a friend of mine, Itza Carvajal, and I like organized like a teach-in like uh, about climate change and archives and some archivists were like, that's not very professional. And we're like, what does that even mean? And, that, and me being an academic was like, well, I'll just research it. Um, and now it's looking more at like, I'm, I'm very interested in looking at how COVID-19 in particular is affecting young and like emerging professionals as well as archival students. Um, Mostly because 
it has uh, kind of decimated the job market. Um, and people graduating, you know, from library and archive schools looking into the job market now are um, disheartened by what they see, I'm sure. Um, it's a very difficult time to find any kind of work, not even precarious work, right? Like just any kind of work. Um, and then you have incoming students who are affected by the fact that uh, a lot of their uh, graduate work is done online, which has an effect on, its, uh, on the ability for students to connect. Um, or at least that's what we traditionally think, right? Like part of grad school is to form a cohort uh, with fellow students that eventually become your colleagues and you're supposed to like go through the careers supporting each other and, and so forth. Um, and having everything transition to online has been really difficult on everybody in the university, um, faculty, on students, on you know, um, grad students as well, who are kind of doing both where they are students, but they are also usually TAs or um, adjunct, um, teaching adjunct classes. And so that I'm interested in like how COVID-19 is affecting the ability for students to develop a professional identity or a professional community. Uh, part of it, I th think, is it has been definitely interrupted um, by the pandemic, but also I'm really curious to see if the pandemic is also creating different kinds of solidarity um, because as people have transitioned to a more online life, academic life and professional life, um, it can disrupt traditional uh, relationship building in the cohort, but also at the same time, I'm starting to hear that uh, a lot of the master students are jumping into, say, private Discord uh, Discord servers to chat about their experiences, and that their shared experiences of difficulty and misery are creating a form of community. and And I am interested I, and to see what happens when those professionals go through school during a time of crisis and then enter the workforce? Like, are they gonna be different than previous generations of professionals because of what they're going through right now? Yeah, I, I agree with Ted. That's, that's a really great point about professional formation. And I'm definitely interested to see just kind of how it affects things going forward. You know, I think, I think there are reasons for hope. There's also a lot of reasons to be really depressed, but uh, uh, I think I think COVID-19, you know, we've already talked about how it's kind of like laid bare, you know, what sucks about society in terms of like racial and economic inequality made it clear that we don't really have the infrastructure to support people. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's also highlighted what's what really matters. And so, you know, I've seen that in my own like research and knowledge mobilization work. I was, um, you know, back in like April, May, I was looking at maybe doing some work on my other area of interest in like multilingualism and applied linguistics. But uh, the people I was with and I kind of collectively decided, you know, this is not really the most important right now. Like we, we all have to sort of, um, you know, tend to our own and, and, and also to more important issues. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I think the, the our focus on, my, my research team's focus on precarious work is still really relevant um, because as we've seen, you know, funding cuts, mass layoffs, make it clear that precarious workers are the first to go. And you too can feel precarious, even if you're, um, you know, you thought you were stable. So um, I think one thing I've been sort of thinking about is, um, you know, one of the benefits, benefits, I don't know, one of the things that happens in a pandemic is that you spend a lot of time with yourself. So uh, lots of opportunity to just sort of reflect on my own sort of 
situation, circumstances, and intentionality, and you know how that applies to uh, what applies to my research is is realizing and and being increasingly mindful of the fact that, for instance, like my research team is majority white. Um, we don't have the kind of direct experience with organizing that maybe people who have done union work or been more engaged in in activism have done, and so just kind of trying to think about how that affects our research, um, how that sort of determines our scope going forward. And um, yeah, just kind of kind of recognizing, you know, what what we can and can't do, what our what our affordances are kind of, you know, during this pandemic and um, you know, who's doing who's doing work elsewhere, how we can work together with other, maybe other communities, other groups, other, other researchers who are focusing on things that are you know, just as important or more important, things like that. Yeah, I think um, the pandemic has definitely kind of um, added a new layer of precarity, I think, and also like has really broken down, you know, the concept of uh, what Fubazi Etar calls vocational awe, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's one thing to be like, hey, can you work more hours? Can you do this with less pay? Because, you know, libraries are so important to community learning and democracy. That's important, right? Like, so are you willing to make sacrifices for that? And I think it's a much harder for library librarians to stomach, hey, can you risk your life uh, so that, you know, people can check out books? Um, and which is what you kind of see, especially in the US with their very disastrous pandemic response, uh, pretending like it doesn't exist. Um, you have a lot of library management pushing their librarians to go back to work um, in very unsafe conditions, like life or death unsafe conditions. And I think that in particular, um, that push has really radicalized a lot of librarians where a lot of my librarian friends are openly sharing, you know, very, terrible work conditions or like things that the management is not asking but telling them to do um, at the risk of losing their jobs. Um, and it doesn't make sense, right? Like it really doesn't make sense to be asking people that. Um, and so that vocational awe is really breaking down. And I think that's gonna have some very significant effects on um, professional identity in the future. Um, but also it's, it's really interesting to see a lot of the the arguments that management has made to push people to take worse and worsening conditions um, really break down when you when we are kind of like in this very extreme situation where going to work in the library could literally kill you, right? As opposed to slowly kill you through poverty and overworking. On that cheerful note, let's talk <laughs> yeah. about Q&A. <laughs> Yeah, so we have a few questions. Uh, I'm mindful of time, so let's we can try to speed through some. So the first one, um, in what ways do you find alternative framings helpful, such as knowledge exchange or sharing, knowledge keepers or care, uh, for example, informed by Indigenous scholars? Are there different creative, for example, non-corporate ways of talking about the work that communities and research create, organize, share knowledge as partners? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so quick take on that is that um, alternative framings are all absolutely helpful. I think anything that gets away from kind of that neoliberal corporate idea of knowledge mobilization is kind of a commodity to be mobilized uh, is really helpful. And I do want to say, you know, I'm probably more of an expert on precarious labor than knowledge mobilization, but I think um, definitely people later today, you know, it seems like they, they will be talking about that as 
as part of their presentations. Um, and looking at, you know, like I, I saw the phrase like knowledge exchange, knowledge transfer mentioned. So I would say stay tuned. Um, might be answered throughout the day. Yeah, same, stay tuned. <laughs> Don't change that channel. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, we have a question from Brian, which is that Brian would love to hear about precarity and minoritization and how people's inter intersections limit or generate their ability to succeed. Oh, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, again, dive in, feel free to fill in the gaps, anyone. Um, a lot of it sort of comes down to some of the intersections like the Allison mentioned, for instance, where precarious workers are more likely to be people of color, are more likely to be LGBTQ. Um, you know, and, and women and so on. So it's kind of, it's kind of a case where, yeah, just you have all these overlapping stresses, you know, for like people of color during this pandemic, it hasn't just been, you know, precarious work or being laid off as a precarious worker. It's also been, you know, racism and a slow descent into fascism in the United States, right? Um, sort of having ripple effects up here, things like that. So um, it's, it's just kind of a case where it's one, you know, capitalism and class and, and precarious labor is one axis along which people uh, can be and are marginalized, essentially. Um, so in terms of in terms of success, you know, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think there are there's a lot of great work being done by, again, organizations like we here, just sort of uh, communities where people do have the support that they need to succeed. So maybe those aren't being provided by libraries, but there are sort of um, alternative communities. So I think I think that's sort of a positive anyway that sort of might help folks succeed a bit more or just do better, you know, survive. I don't know. Yeah, uh, for from my own research angle in the history of professionalism and professionalization, like I think it's important to remember that the professions were specifically designed to to not allow minorities to enter their enclosed occupational workforce. Um, and that has carried through in the ways that we think about what professional behavior is. So oftentimes uh, people who are marginalized, like women, people of color, you know, black and indigenous people, are often called unprofessional because they're not acting in a specific white, middle-class, you know, usually male uh, form of behavior and norms, right? And that oftentimes learning professional norms and behavior uh, for uh, marginalized people um, is a lot more difficult, if not damaging to themselves as people because it's forcing them to live and think in a way that is very alien to them and often also very hostile to them. Um, and so that all kind of ties into the precarity because oftentimes we are told we live in a meritocracy, meritocracy, essentially, and that, you know, the people who are in precarious labor and can't get out of precarious labor eventually to find like a full-time job is because they are just not up to it in some way. And often that not up to it is that they're just not professional enough, which usually means they're just not a white middle-class man. Um, and so I think that's something that we should also keep in mind is the way that we have coded uh, talking about marginalization in ways that are hit, that hide that marginalization and professionalism is definitely one of them. Yeah, thanks. The third question in here, you know, actually kind of relates to maybe some folks who are struggling with that. 
um, finding of stable work. So regarding working in, in non-library environments in precarious positions and struggling to mobilize knowledge, how do you imagine people in those kind of positions finding ways to connect and do this work, particularly in the COVID world where any employment is good employment? That is another big question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's hard just because, you know, if you're if you're in a precarious position, you're probably always already looking for work. So trying to share or mobilize or form relationships while you're doing that, I know, you know, from experience is just is just really difficult. But I think, um, you know, like what Ted mentioned about online communities, whether you find those, you know, from a geographic point of departure or from an online community, um, that can be helpful. And, you know, just most of our interaction is me to hit it online. So that's kind of, you know, where I found most of, um, you know, most of my like professional support and, and support for knowledge mobilization. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes just sort of putting it out there and saying, hey, is anyone else interested in this? Um, you know, you could contact maybe a librarian and see if they have any ideas. I don't know. That might be that might be too trite. But um, just talking to someone else, you know, is always a really good option for things that you maybe hadn't thought of um, in terms of how to accomplish a specific task. So I guess that's kind of one thought. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. It's so, I like my heart goes out to people in precarious work. And I say that as a grad student, as if I'm not a precarious worker for some reason, but um, it's difficult. It is really difficult and hard. And I think in particular, um, when precarious workers are asked to, to work against their precarity, like the, it can be very disastrous to the lives of people who speak out. I think that's just a, a, a reality and a fact that um, that we need to own up to. Um, like, I think, for example, um, graduate students in, um, in the U.S. who have been mobilizing to, oh, there's that word, mobilizing, um, organizing to, to kind of uh, strike or, or protest for better rights, not just for themselves, but for um, undergraduate students, right, um, who have also been uh, dealing with miserable conditions in the universities in the U.S. during a pandemic and how the administration has retaliated so harshly against them. Um, and that is not fun to watch. And it's also, you know, it discourages, it's designed to discourage people from speaking out. So I don't really have, unfortunately, like any good answers outside of it shouldn't be on precarious workers to change things um, that and maybe this is like, this might be uncomfortable to hear, but for many of us who are able to afford the time and the energy to go to conferences, even virtual conferences, we have a form of privilege that allows us to do those kinds of things. And in that sense, we ought to be looking to see how we can help other people so that it's not just precarious workers who then get penalized so heavily and have the most to lose often. Um, to do all of the work for themselves. It shouldn't be like that. Thanks, Ted. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think we'll wrap up now. Um, it's a heavy note to end on, but I think there's also things there to, um, there is, I think there was some hope in this conversation. Okay. In terms of yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, the moment that we're in the organizing that is possible. Um, 
but I want to say thanks so much to Ian and Ted for joining us again uh, today. And if folks want to reach you online, I'm just going to pop up a slide here that's got everybody's um, Twitter handles so that and email addresses. So if anybody wants to contact any of us with other questions or ideas or uh, ask a librarian, you can email Ian. <laughs> um, you can feel free to get in touch and we would really love to hear from you. Uh, Karen and I, um, we do have lots of other episodes up on our website there, including the earlier one with Ian and Ted, which I would definitely encourage everybody to listen to. We covered a lot of new ground today. That conversation was quite different and uh, there's lots more to learn. So um, please check it out and, and feel free to connect with us. And thanks again to the Keeping It Real conference for having us today and to Sajdi and, uh, and Julia and Heather and um, everybody else on the organizing committee. And also, I don't know how many people had the captions turned on, but Kim was typing away frantically. So thank you, Kim, for, for making this a more accessible event. It's really important. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, and on behalf of the Keeping It Real committee, I want to say thank you as well. There's some lovely sentiments in the chat right now. I'm going to end the recording, so it's going to make that awful sound as I do it. Thank you.